Hey, I'm DJ, and this is episode one of Daddy's Dirty Details. Now, what you're about to hear is my conversation with Todd Brozier. Now, Todd is one of the nicest people that I've ever met, but he has a really dark history. He's actually a convicted killer. So for obvious reasons, this episode is made for mature audiences. Hey, I'm DJ. Well, Daddy. And this is Daddy's Dirty Details. You are my best friend, Ty. You're his uncle. So I met Ty when I was 10, and Ty, had pic- they had pictures of you up on, the, on their fridge, but you were in a jumpsuit. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. You were in a jumpsuit, and so then I got the story that Todd was in prison, and I don't remember if I got it when I was 10, if I got the whole details of what you were doing in prison in Colorado, in Denver, right? In Canyon City. Yeah. Okay. So then I got the details probably later on uh, that you were in prison for uh, a long time and for a big crime. And you are, uh, what do they say? A convicted murderer? Yeah, I'm a convicted murderer. I remember being a kid and not knowing anything about you and then always having not a fear, but maybe like a little fear of like meeting you and... You did 25 years? 25. And so I finally met you in 2020, which did you get out on, um, did you get out on, it was parole, right? I got out to a halfway house. Okay. And which is before parole. Okay. In my situation, because I wanted to reestablish myself back into society. And then I had to wait a year. I denied parole to go to the halfway house. Okay. And when I saw the parole board, they had set me back one year, which meant that I had to wait another year to see the parole board. So it had, did it have anything to do with COVID? Were they letting people out? No, I actually gained my freedom because of good behavior, bring enough time, and I made it. I just happened to coincidentally get out on the day that Governor Polis of Colorado closed the state down because of COVID, I was on a transport van to Denver when he made that proclamation. Oh, okay. So I got out because of COVID. And then because of COVID, I was really successful in making it back into society because society was on lockdown where I had just came from, and I was used to it, and the world stopped. What were you sentenced to? How much time were you sentenced? I was sentenced to 35 years for second-degree murder. And, excuse me, I was sentenced to 35 years, yeah, for for conspiracy commit. First degree murder and 30 years for second degree murder. So I had 65 years total. Okay. And you served 25. Before we get into all the details and everything, were you facing the death sentence? They talked about it at one point. Were you scared of that? Or were you like, or were you like a tough guy that you maybe acted like you weren't scared of it? No, I was scared of it. I mean, immediately because I thought, what's this going to do to my family? My mom, my dad, my brother, my. You know, my sister-in-law had a niece and nephew. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids, my wife, her family. You know, what is this going to do to them? Because at that point, Arapahoe County was seriously, they were sending people to death. Yeah. I had a, I had a person I lived next to in Arapahoe County named Nathan Dunlap. And he had killed four people in a pizza robbery 
of a Chuck E. Cheese, and people in Colorado would know about it. It's it's just a nefarious case, and they gave him the death penalty, and I was in the cell right next to him. Did you know him? I did. Personally? Yes. Was he... Uh, like our our killers, obviously with you, it kind of opened my eyes of like killers. Not every killer is the worst person you've ever met, right? And that's correct. Was he a pretty terrible person? He wasn't. He was a, I mean, he did some bad things. And, you know, good people make bad decisions and do horrible things. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that you can't go back to being a good person. You just can't unring the bell in the damage that you did. Yeah. And you can't undo the actions that you caused. But it doesn't mean that you can't come back to yourself and find that zero point and go back to it and become good with your actions yeah. again for the rest of your life. So let's go back. This happened. You committed a murder. And... um I'm sure a lot of people think like, oh, but did he mean to? Was it like a drunk driving thing? Was it an accident? This wasn't an accident, right? What year was this? It was August 14th of 1995. And how old were you? I was 26. You're young. Yeah. That's young. You had two kids and a wife. Yes. I had a two-year-old and an 18-week-year-old. Mm-hmm. And then, so let's let's get into it. What happened? I was having an affair with a married woman. I was behaving very badly at home with my wife. Mm-hmm. I left my wife. I took a domestic violence case against my wife on July 5th of 1995. When I got out of jail on July 6th of 95, I ended up going to stay with my victim and his wife, who I was having an affair with his wife. Did he know you were having an affair? Yes. Okay. Well, I don't know if he knew I was having an affair, but he knew that I was sleeping with her. Okay. Yeah. Difference. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew about that. I stayed with them for a period of time. It started becoming uncomfortable. I was telling myself lies, and I was believing lies that I was being told by my girlfriend then mm-hmm. and my co-defendant. And it was paramount that I was the good guy. Okay. So she she was telling you lies about him. She was saying little things that I would move in my mind mm-hmm. and justify in my mind that they were bad or that he was bad, even though he was a, my best friend. He was? Yes. And it was it just played out in my mind. I sold myself so many lives because I wanted to be with her that he became a bad person. Wow. Okay. So I didn't know you guys were friends, even best friends. We were close. He had another best friend, I would say, who was closer than me. But we had hang, hung out for almost two years prior to this murder. Okay. And his name? My victim's name? Yeah. Was Jimmy Steele? Jimmy, and um, you have a book right now on this whole, the whole story. Yes, uh, I wrote it with Jimmy's mom and Jimmy's cousin. Jimmy's mom's name is Peggy. She's intrinsic in the story. 
and Beth still, and she is Jimmy's cousin. It's uh, Peggy's niece, okay. and she was a huge part of this too. Okay. So uh, you were you were fed some things. You then created in your head that he was a bad guy, um, and you came up with a plan with his wife to get this done, right? Yes. Okay. And so, um, and, but you had the idea that you guys were going to get away with it. Yeah. Every criminal thinks he's going to get away with it. Okay. (laughs) So, um, let's go to the, to the day of what happened. The day of, it seemed like everything was coming to a head Mm -hmm. between the situation of me living there, uh, some other situations. It came out that um, probably a week prior, there were some issues going on where um, there was an STD brought into the situation. Uh-huh. I never had it. I never got it. Don't have it. They both tested positive for it. Okay. She told me that he had brought it because he was... He must have been messing around. Yeah. Turns out she had brought it in. From somebody else. From somebody else. Not he nor I. Mm, Okay. And, or at least that's my speculation on it. I don't really want to. Sure. You know, I don't know for a fact. Mm -hmm. But she, uh, so I was with her and she received a phone call on the day of. And it was the doctor telling her that she had been given this. Uh, diagnosis of herpes and that she couldn't. And in 95, it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. You know, it was, it it was a big shock. You know, now I don't know exactly what it is. I'm sure it's still a shock, but it was a lot different. Sure. Yeah. And so we thought that automatically meant no kids, no anything. And it just escalated the timetable quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. So I told her, leave, pack your stuff, go to your mom. You know, you need to be clear of this, and I'll take care of it. So how do you get to the point where you're, where you're like, I'm actually going to do this? Like, how do you get to that point of being like, it's not just an idea. Both her and I are on board. Let's, like, how did it get there? Through various different talks, that's where the conspiracy comes in. Yeah. Because it wasn't, we just didn't talk about it once. We talked about it numerous times. Okay. And then I actually tried to go through with it twice before. And it didn't work out. No, it didn't work out. You know, by the grace of God, it didn't work out. And it was always small things that happened that just didn't allow it to happen. And, but it was planned that we would go out and that, I would come back and he wouldn't. And then when he walked through the door, she was mad. Oh, because she thought it had happened. She thought it was going to happen. Okay. And I, I don't know how that sat or resonated with her, but then she was mad when he would come back and I would be like, okay, here's the situation. This is what happened. Wow. And so that night I was like, okay, this is it. It's going to happen. And I resolved it in my mind, told myself I was going to do it. And you know, set it up, and that night later on, I commenced to stab him to death. And you, so, you did this at 
their house? Yeah, in their garage, which was detached from the house. And it was just him and you there, and he knew you guys were friends. And so he didn't even know any kind of that you that you were upset with him, that you didn't like him, that No, I never let that be seen. Yeah. And he had actually I was waiting for him to come home and he actually called and needed me to come pick him up because he was out riding with his other friend on their mountain bikes and he got in a flat tire. Okay. So I went to pick him up at his other friends. So his friends saw me pick him up, took him home. When we got home, Jimmy went through the back gate to the garage to put his bike up. And I went in the house. And when I walked in the house, I grabbed the knife that I had kept under a cushion that I was going to use to kill him. Yeah. And I remember walking through the kitchen and looking at the microwave and seeing that it was 10 o'clock. At night. At night. Okay. And I walked out the back door. And I knew I was going to kill him. And I walked up to the garage door. And on my way to the garage door, I could remember there was just something happened. And all of a sudden, it was like you could feel the weight of the moonlight on you. And I could hear everything more clear. And I knew that when I walked through that door, when I walked over that threshold to the garage and I walked from outside to inside, that I was leaving everything good outside. Wow. And that I was carrying nothing but evil in. Mm-hmm. And I crossed that line. And I went in, and I proceeded to stab him to death. And I stabbed him a total of 15 times. It was uh, 13 times in his neck and two in his heart. <sighs> And then you left. Then I waited, and and I had said some things to him while I was killing him. And I remember taking the edge of the knife and flicking his cheek to see if I could get a response. And I remember watching what seemed like the light go out of his eyes. Mm-hmm. And then I went outside, and I stood there for a minute, And there wasn't any movement. There wasn't anything. And so I went back in the house, tried to make it look like a a burglary or a robbery or something, turned a bunch of stuff over and everything, and put all the, put the weapon, put the clothes, everything in bags, washed my hands, looked up, and six minutes had elapsed. Wow. And I took off. I went back out, and as I walked by the garage, I heard a noise, and I didn't know at that point what it was. I now know what it was. And it was everything leaving his body, like his final breath, and they called it a death rattle. Okay. And so I heard these noises, and it I didn't know what. And then it just it was there, and I walked out and I left the back gate open so his dog could leave and so where it made it look like somebody came through the back gate and I had parked my truck about three blocks away and I walked up to my truck and I got in it and I drove over to Stacy's parents house and that's Stacy is the 
the wife was his wife and my codependent. Okay. So after this happened, did you have a time where you sat and went like, holy shit, what did I just do? Did you have that? That night? No. After I was arrested? Yes. Okay. But that night? No. I had, uh, I had accomplished what I wanted to get accomplished. I had uh, what I thought made my life or our lives a little better. When I got there, Stacy was there, and we're watching TV, and I couldn't tell her it was done because her dad was there. Yeah. Watching TV, too, so I talked to him for a while, and then I went downstairs to go to bed. They had a cot that I could sleep on, so I went to bed on a cot. And later on that night, Stacy uh, came down, and she was like, is it done? And I was like, yeah, it's done. He's dead. And she was like, okay. And I remember she laid with me for a little while. And then she got up and she went back up because she couldn't have her parents not see or her yeah. dad not see that she was in her own bed. And then the weird thing happened. And later on, her mom came downstairs and asked me, is he really dead? Did you kill him? Her mom? And I said, yeah, he's dead. Okay, so how did the mom then get involved in this? Um, she tells her mom everything, evidently. Yeah. Julie must have known. So the mom was okay with it? Yeah, the mom was okay with it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That was never really investigated or, you know, or there wasn't enough gravity there for the Rappo County DA to look into. Yeah. Because it would have been my word and just a he said, she said thing. You know, about it. Wow. And so they never really went after it, but I know in my heart what I ended up being a part of and dealing with. Yeah. Did you feel like you were the, you were used to be this person to do this? What did, what did the wife get out of this? What was she to gain? The uh, life insurance. Okay. Freedom, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, and here was the thing: I was, I was under the mind that Jimmy was mentally abusive, never physically abusive, but mentally, emotionally, you know, that he held her down, you know, as far as just from everything he was controlling, and yeah, and I knew that not to be true, but I let myself believe it was true, yeah, from little actions, and just I had really bad thinking. And so she was gaining all these things, and we were going to be together. You know, so I thought that's the biggest gain. Wow. So you felt a little manipulated, obviously. Um, when So the next day he was found then, right? Yes. The next day we, I took Stacy to work, and we had planned that as soon as she got off work, we would drive back home like normal. And we would find the body. And then we would report it. And because Stacy was at her mom's all night, and I had an alibi, mm-hmm. that we get away with this. Because it looked like a burglary, you know, all these things. Yeah. And that, but that's not how it happened. That's not what went down. No, not at all. I don't mean to be 
It's just, you know, best laid plans never work. Mm-hmm. Um, I picked her up from work. We drove home. When we got to the house, you know, we didn't think anything. When we walked in, I heard a noise. And I thought, oh, my God, he's not dead. Wow. And then I heard a voice, and it was hysterical, and it was on the phone with the 911 operator. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that it was uh, it was Jimmy's sister. And now that I know the full story from Peggy and everybody and in the book, I understand that. Jimmy doesn't miss work. Yeah. And so when he missed work, they were calling. And he used to call his mom and his sister pretty much every day. They had a really good relationship. And so when he missed those phone calls and he wasn't at work, something would, they thought something. Yeah. And Jimmy had epilepsy. Okay. So they thought maybe he was sick or maybe he had a seizure. So they went over to see him. All the front doors open. You know, the house is kind of in disarray. Uh, she sees that he's laying in the garage, but she can't go out there because their dog who would just jump and jump. He was just not a well-trained dog, and she was frightened of it. Okay. So she was on the phone with 911, and then I ended up on the phone, and I said, yeah, I'll go check, and I went out there. and So I came back in and got on the phone and told them that, I believe that he was dead, and it must sound really callous on the 911. I was like, I think he's dead. You probably don't need the sirens or something. I said something slick. And then the world just closed up. I mean, everybody showed up. There were fire department, paramedics, law enforcement, all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And... Neighbors coming out, looking, watching. I mean, it was media. Uh, it was horrible. Did you get nervous at that point? No, I knew that there was going to be a point of this that I was going to have to face. Yeah. And walk it down, but I thought I was going to be safe. So they put Stacy, I, and his sister in the back of this like response van vehicle. Big things. And so I'm in the back of this thing, and I'm watching. I'm sitting across from the two girls, and his sister is hysterical. And Stacy cried one tear. Mm. And at that point, I was like, we're caught. Yeah. Because they, why is she not acting like his yeah, sister? That's, that's her husband, yeah. I mean, this is everything. And I thought, this is horrible. And so went through it, went through the motions, played our parts, went down, answered questions, did things, all kinds of stuff. Came out of my interrogation, and Jimmy's mom had walked in with her brother and uh, her niece and somebody else. Oh, her uh, her mom, and I remember seeing her, and I walked up to Peggy, and Peggy gave me a hug, and I was hugging her, and she was like, how? How did this happen? 
And I was like, I don't know. But, they're, you know, they're going to catch a person who did this. Mm-hmm. And her brother was a homicide detective. Mm. And he paid me like that for the killer. Wow, really? He's like, that's your killer. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And, you know, it turned out he was right. So that happened. And then my ex-wife came to pick me up from the police station because I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. And she came in mad as hell. She was like, did you kill him? Is this what she got you to do? And laying down all these accusations. I was like, okay. So if I wasn't a suspect. Oh, it was, in, it was in front of. It was in the police station. Oh, okay. And I was like, and I'm not mad at my ex-wife for doing that. You know, it's a reaction. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm sure that I was a suspect already. Mm-hmm. Once they figured out the situation. So, you know, we did that. I went home with my ex-wife. The next day was my like 45th day after the domestic violence. And I was supposed to go back with my court reports or my reports from my anger management group and all these things to submit them. I ended up going into court, didn't have any of my paperwork because it was in the house, which was locked as a crime scene. And I had to tell the judge, I don't have anything. My roommate just died. Hmm. And the judge was like, okay, well then. Bring it back, you know, two weeks from now. And I was like, okay. So then I left, and my ex-wife was with me. And because they had my car. Um, so this is the 16th of August. And they had my truck because they wanted to go through it. And I was like, yeah, go ahead. You know, I wiped everything down. and So, or I thought. And... It turned out that we went to court, and then we went to lunch, and then when we got home, there was a message from a detective, and the detective left a message for my ex-wife telling her not to let on, but that they really needed to talk to me because they thought that they had something. And you heard that message? I heard that message before Melanie. Okay. So I said, hey, you want to call this guy? You know, because I can't hide it from her. I'm not telling her I didn't I committed a crime, but I need her to be as real as possible. Yeah. So she called him. I'm there. I don't listen to it, but I hear her side of the conversation. And then I was like, Well, I gotta go pick up my truck because they told her his truck is ready. We've processed the truck. He can come pick it up. So I was like, okay, well then I need to go down there and Pick the truck up, and when I cruise away with the truck, then I know everything's good. And I never made it out of the junkyard <laughs> without being arrested. Really? They had you right there? Oh, yeah. It was uh, it was very surreal. I went there. When I pulled up, one, they were mad because I wasn't in what I said I was driving down there. And on the way down there, I passed under an underpass, and I saw uh, one of their cop cars and a Greenwood Village cop, both on the sides of the interstate, so they could have pulled me over. Okay. So 
but I wasn't in the car that I told them I was going to be in. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know. So I made it all the way down there. So then when I'm down there and I get out and we're talking and everything, we're basically circling each other. Kind of like at the beginning of a fight. Mm-hmm. And looking at each other and answering questions. He kept asking questions. I kept answering. And finally I heard a noise and I looked. I turned my head. And when I turned my head, I looked in the mirror. I looked in the passenger window. No, I'm sorry. I looked in the driver's side window of the his car and saw him drawing his gun. Wow. And before I could react, he had his gun pressed up against my neck and was arresting me for first-degree murder. Wow. And then all these cops came out of the woodwork. They were all just around. They were just there. Didn't even see them all. They just popped up. So what was the evidence that got you arrested? They had, uh, well, Stacy. His wife. His wife. They brought her in for questioning earlier, and evidently she had a statement that implicated me. They arrested me, and later on in the discovery, I found out that in my truck, they found a bloody fingerprint of mine underneath my gear shift knob on my truck because I had a manual. Whoa. And it was Jimmy's blood, my fingerprint. Wow. And I was like, they never got a murder weapon. They never got anything. But how did that happen? Because you washed your hands. I washed my hands, but I packed everything in a bag. And when I had the bag, I must have still had blood on my hand from the bag, thinking that I didn't. That's like a mo- that's like in, in a movie. Right. And then I put it there, and boom. So they had me there. And then they, uh, and I remember when, I, when they arrested me, they asked to see my hands. And I showed them, and I didn't have any cuts. And they're like, that's weird. Because normally if you stab somebody to death, you cut yourself. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I didn't believe that I was gotten. You know, they Mirandaized me, took me down. They didn't put me in a room not much smaller than this one and gave me a phone. And I remember calling my dad first thing. And I'm like, hey, it was his anniversary. My mom and dad's anniversary. And they were having some party. And I was like, I can't make it. And he was like, what do you mean you can't make it? I was like, I'm not going to make it. They arrested me for first-degree murder. And my dad was like, well, if you did it, own it. Get out in front of it. If you didn't do it, stay tight. You'll come home. Wow. And I was like, okay. So, you know, but when I took me into the interrogation room started interrogating me i was i don't know i was forever and then finally they just got me going sorry they got me going and i'm thinking back to it and i had an emotional outburst and i said the worst thing you can say without a lawyer present one don't ever talk to the police without a lawyer present Mm -hmm. learn that lesson Two, don't ever admit your guilt 
Said, yeah, you did it. And then you slept like a baby. And you said that. Yeah. So it was damning evidence. Yeah, you were cooked at that point. And I was like, you know, and it was, that was me being prideful in my stage of who I was back then. Mm-hmm. You know? What, like you thought you were the shit? Oh, yeah. I thought I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Mm. You know, even when I first got to prison, I thought I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Do you remember your first day in prison? Yes, I do. Like, holy shit, I'm never going home. I'm going to die here. Wow. I was charged with um, first-degree murder, commission, uh, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and then she had went to trial. Um, she had a private attorney because they, when you have two co-defendants, you can't both have public defenders. One gets a private attorney. Okay. And they gave it to her because I had pretty much already admitted guilt so they thought they had a slam dunk case to get mine. Mm-hmm. So they gave her the private attorney. Well, she ended up going to court and beating the charges because I had already admitted to it, and they laid it all at my feet. Size difference, you know, she was afraid of me. You know, they yeah. did it. She had a good attorney who he knew how to beat the system, and he presented a better case and created a reasonable doubt, and she was acquitted of everything except accessory after the fact. She was given 12 years felony probation and let out that day. She didn't do any time. Well, no, she did the time that she did in the county waiting. Okay, okay. Okay, and I think they counted that, you know, towards her time. And, you know, and am I bitter that she didn't get caught? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm two sides on it, you know. One, if she would have went to prison, or if she would have admitted guilt, I probably wouldn't be here today because of the situation of restorative justice. Mm-hmm. But because she didn't, it was the predicator for my victim's mom to want to reach out to me. And, you know, in this whole meantime, my victim's mother was raising their daughter. They had a kid. They had a daughter who was less than one years old when her, when her father died. Okay. And so Peggy was raising her granddaughter because Stacy's family was in question mm. about some things. And Peggy just did not like that happening. Yeah. And Peggy fought tooth and nail after Stacy got out for a long time. And then I remember reading in the paper in Lyman that Stacy was. Suing for the life insurance money. Wow. And they gave it to her. But it was with the decision that the money would go to uh, the daughter in a trust fund until she was a certain age and she had a whole different person who was taking care of the money, not family. Okay. I don't know what they call that. A conservative, I guess. But somebody else was watching the money and making sure that it went to do you know how much Her. it was? Uh, I could be wrong here, but I believe it was $100,000. But it accrued, you know, throughout all the years, everything, however it works. Okay. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I honestly don't think it's a fair trade for that girl because she lost really a hell of a good guy and her dad. Yeah. And he he was phenomenal. Has she ever reached out to you anything? 
No. Um, she knows about me because of the book, because of her mother, because of her grandmother, you know, in certain situations. But we we have never spoken, and I'm not allowed to speak to her because of, uh, one, she is a victim. Mm-hmm. And two, there are talks about eventually maybe her and I having a dialogue like I had with the victim's mother. Okay. So part of this, part of you getting out had to do with Jimmy's mom coming forward to have some kind of relationship with you, right? Right. Um, And... I guess she probably didn't know. She probably didn't want to be your friend, but she wanted to have answers to things. So um, when did she finally, like, come visit you and talk to you? Okay. In 2013, October 2013, I had gotten a call while I was at work at Ordway to go to the major's office. And the major is not a place you want to go to. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're pretty much in trouble if you're going there. This is the major security. He answers only to the warden and associate warden. If he wants to talk to you, there's probably some big issue. Yeah. Okay. And in prison, you never know what that big issue could be. Okay. And so, so you run through your mind. Oh my God, what I do? Who did what? What am I involved in? You know, things yeah. like this. And so we go into the major's office and then he asks everybody to leave and leaves me in there with this woman in his office. Mm-hmm. And they all leave. This is like not something that happens. So then I'm sitting there and the woman explains to me that she is, her name is Monica Chambers. She is the victim services coordinator for the Department of Corrections. And she says, and I've got two words for you. And I want to see a reaction. And I said, okay. She said, Peggy Steele. And I was like, how is Peggy doing? You know, she's so wonderful. She wrote me some letters a while ago, back in 2000. You know, she was she showed me such grace. It's this, that, the other. And, I mean, it was true that Peggy had written me letters. And in those letters, she had forgiven me for this crime. And, you know, which was a, which was a huge weight off me. But it also made me want to be a better person at that point in time. So I started changing who I was. And... She must have liked the reaction because she went on to tell me about restorative justice, how it's a pilot program, how I would be number three of three people to meet with their victims, to talk, to answer questions, and to bring about understanding of the crime and so that maybe they can finally have a fuller and a healthier way to look at it Okay. so that they weren't always wondering what's going on. Because victims... Victims don't have the answers to all the questions, and offenders do. Right. But rarely in our retributive justice society are the answers ever purveyed to the victim. And I left saying, yes, I would love to meet with Peggy. And this was about how many years since the crime? It was 19 years. Oh, you were in for 19, and then she this came forward. Right, because I went in. I was arrested in 95. This was in October of 2013, and then in February of 2014, we sat down for six hours in a meeting in the visiting room and met face-to-face. Wow. And I answered 
And it was the toughest day of my life. Really? Yeah. You answered everything she wanted to know. Everything she had asked, I answered. Yes. Including what were Jimmy's last words? Mm. How long did it take him to die? Did he suffer? You know, she wanted to know these really important facts that she had been living with for years. Was she? What was she like? Was she calm? Was she crying the whole time? She didn't cry the whole time. She was very calm and very reassuring. I think one of the biggest things that happened was, and she tells the story fantastically, that when I walked in and she saw me, I didn't look like the same person that I looked like in Arapahoe County. Mm-hmm. Like then I looked like a monster. Big, you know, younger guy, bigger guy. Just now I'm wearing glasses. I'm bald. I'm not, I don't look like that same person. I don't even have that look in my eye. Yeah. And when I walked into the room, she said, hi, Todd. And she gave me this hug. Wow. Before we even talked. And you were not expecting that. No, no, no. It was so unsettling and took all the wind out of my sails. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. And I certainly wasn't expecting that. And when that happened, it was it was incredible. While you were in prison, did you ever get to like mourn the loss of Jimmy and feel where did the actual like I feel so bad that I did this? When did that come into place? Probably about three days after I was arrested. Oh, it was that quick. Yeah, it was that quick because you realized that they had arrested you. They charged you with this. You were in the county which is really foreign. I was arrested on a Wednesday night. I went to sleep for a little bit, woke up for breakfast. I remember we were eating biscuits and gravy that morning. And uh, I'm down there, and you got to walk up and get your food and everything. I'm sitting at the table, and all of a sudden, the the pod, all the guys who are talking, you know, and everything because they've been locked up all night, talking and everything, and everything goes quiet. And the guy next to me bumps my elbow says, hey, and he points to the TV, and I look up on the TV, and I'm on the TV. Wow. Because I had just been arrested for this murder. It's my mugshot. And so then everyone in that pod knows what you did. Everybody in that pod knew what I did. That's part one of my two-part conversation with Todd. Part two is up right now, so go check it out. Thanks for listening. That was Daddy's Dirty Details. And if you've got any dirty details, hit me up. I want to hear about them. And go check out the other episodes of Daddy's Dirty Details. We'll see you next time.